You know, you've heard of Louisa C. Grieve on my podcast at the Uyghur Human Rights Project. Now we got her on video too through Zoom. What a what a time this has been to discover video casting, right, Louisa? So welcome, Absolutely. welcome aboard. Good to finally see you face to face in one way or another. So, uh, congratulations. Uh, tell us why the Senate, you know, passed protections for the Uyghurs, for the Uyghurs. Absolutely. Well, I have to give credit to both uh, to the to the entire U.S. Congress, the Senate uh, and the House for listening and recognizing that despite the fact that China was trying to completely cover up its really harsh policies, not only against the Tibetans, but against the Uyghurs, the Senate staff, the House staff and the members themselves were listening and they realized that something really big was happening, violation of a norm that hasn't been breached in a long time. There, you know, I can quote uh, Congressman Chris Smith uh, right there in New, in New Jersey saying, yep. this is the largest incarceration of an ethnic minority since World War II. So they, they wrote this bill actually a year and a half ago. They really wrote it and then made it public in October 2018. So uh, people who know Congress say, well, that works pretty fast for, you know, between a year and a half. But of course, for the Uyghurs, it couldn't be any sooner. So they're very thrilled that last week the Senate passed it unanimously. All right. Well, you were home. We were all home to watch it happen. But how excited were you when you saw the vote tally? Oh, it was great. Um, the good thing about the, the, the way it was working in the Senate was that it was, was passed by unanimous consent. And um, so um, there was, once it was passed, it was passed. We knew it would either pass all the way or it would be held up and it passed. Um, so next up is the House. And we're hearing that it might be as soon as next week. And then President Trump could put a signature on it next week. And we can have you back to talk about what it means once in law. Maybe we'll get you back on after that whole thing occurs. Absolutely. But I've got to ask you why um, Americans really don't know about the Uyghurs. So how does the Senate know but not regular Americans. Like, how did what what made it stand out to them to get this approved? Well, I want to say that um, I, I, despite the fact that many times the Congress gets very low approval readings from Americans, there are a lot of dedicated people who are taking seriously their responsibilities to set policies for our country, and in the realm of um, foreign policy and. Uh, national interest mm -hmm. um, and, and specifically human rights, they are paying attention to those places where there are horrific abuses. So um, also my organization, the Uyghur Human Rights Project, has sure. been steadily re producing reports, you know, titles where if you just read the titles of our reports, nobody has to read a human rights report. Who does that, right? right. <laughs> uh, but if you look at the titles, you know, deception, pressure, threats, threats the transfer of young Uyghur women mm. to factories in China. Um, the assault on the on linguistic rights of Uyghurs with the elimination of their language in the schools, um, re religious repression, um, harassment abroad, you know, the Chinese government going and um, harassing people who don't even live in China if they attempt to speak out about what's happening. So 
um, we'd like to think that some of our reports were, were read by those congressional staffers whose job it is to look out for things that violate American values. And you are an advocate for the Uyghurs. So uh, what was your role with this whole bill and passing it? Well, I can say that my organization um, for a long time, before I joined, okay. um, I've only been with the organization about two years, but always tried to um, meet with those members of Congress who stood with Tibetans, who stood with Chinese dissidents, who stood with the people of Hong Kong, who stood with the people of Darfur and every other hotspot around the world, and asked them, our Congress, we need to speak up because we can see things going downhill. We can see the discrimination and the repression mounting. And if China's a big market, no one wants to criticize China, afraid of business interests being heard or diplomatic retaliation, but we really want you to stand up. So that's what they said for years and years. And then when this terrible crisis erupted, um, uh, some people there were in a position to write a bill. And my organization did uh, testify before Congress. We were invited okay. by um, both the, ha the House of Representatives, uh, East Asia Subcommittee and also a special commission that looks at China and the rule of law. Um, and so Senator Rubio, mm -hmm. Congressman McGovern, Congressman Smith, um, Congressman Sherman, and Congressman Yoho had a chance to question the, the chairman of our board. And that usually happens, that happens before they approve it, right? Those hearings happen right before they approve it? That's right. So in September 2018, um, our chairman, his name is Nuri Turkel. He's the first uh, American-educated Uyghur lawyer in America. Uh, he testified then and had a list of, I'm trying to remember, I think it was something like 21 recommendations, and so many of them made it into the bill. So we were really happy about that. And he testified again in October this past year in, in 2019 about forced labor. And now there's a forced labor bill in front of the Congress. Amazing. Um, well, does this allow uh, Uyghurs to now come over to this country to flee the oppression they're under? I must say that uh, this country is just so beloved by Uyghurs. They, um, what did somebody tell me? They think it's like a new Jerusalem okay. for the Uyghurs because here they find life as it should be. Um, that civil rights, political rights, are the norm and when they're violated people can fight back the press can call it out uh, you can have <clears throat> lawsuits um, citizens can raise their voices they can of course do political campaigns they can do issue campaigns and it's like uh, living uh, having lived for 70 years under the chinese communist party just like every other citizen of china but also on top of that feeling their entire nation you know their sense of an ethnic identity right. the nation of the uyghurs was being steadily repressed um, they just, they really feel America's great. And uh, many people came here for studies. And so when they got their degrees, they were able to get to stay. And anyone who's come with the need for asylum, nobody has uh, been denied, as far as we know, political asylum. So we have to give credit to the U.S., um, to ICE and the U.S. government for recognizing they can't be sent back. They would face terrible human rights abuses if they were faced. That is really encouraging to hear that they are protected here, which is great. Now, prior to this, how many Uyghurs were in America right now? Great question. People always ask, how many Uyghurs are there? And the answer always used to be, we don't know. But um, in 2015, the U.S. Census Bureau, one of the periodic in-depth studies um, asked a question, what language is speaking on your home? And so at that time, it was between 8,000 to 
10,000 households spoke Uyghur at the home. So wow. that's a pretty good guess. And that's, it's, that's almost unheard of. You know, we're not hearing about that at all, but thanks for giving that some light here. Yeah, and that doesn't even include kids under five. So um, there are a lot of there are families. And um, I mean, I have to say the Uyghurs have the handicap of having a, a name that's hard to pronounce or hard to spell. Like, what is, how do you spell it? It starts with a U. Um, right. But we're really, I mean, we're thrilled that um, media observers like you, Alex, are recognizing that um, just because it's unfamiliar doesn't mean it, you know, it's not a reason to, to ignore it. So they're very grateful for the attention. Well, so this, this, thing's, this bill has been on the burner for a while now since October 18. But would you say that this pandemic heightened the need to get this passed as soon as possible? Oh, for sure. Uh, the fact is that one thing that's happening is that I think a lot of Americans are paying attention in a specific way to how China is governed by the Chinese Communist Party. And they're recognizing that deceit and cover-up is really routine. And of course, that happens in every political system. Like we said, you need the vigilance of the press to right. fight against the tendency for those in power to try to um, limit information about what they're up to. So we always have to fight for transparency. But in China, it's simply routine, and they can do it if they don't like um, what somebody says, a, a critical voice or some newspaper journalist writes something they're not supposed to, lose your job, be detained, you don't even have to go on trial. And so I think Americans are seeing that with this virus, that the Chinese government was not straightforward um, with their own people or with the rest of the world, and we're all paying the price. And so people start to realize, huh, should we believe that the Chinese government uh, mm. really is making a life, nice life for the Maybe we should believe the Tibetans and the Uyghurs when they say um, they're suffering these horrific abuses. So then the ordinary person is able to, uh, next time they see that kind of reporting, it sort of resonates more. And um, certainly it's past time for the U.S. government to have a a, a stated policy that will uh, do a couple of more, even stronger policy moves than this, um, than the government itself has already taken. Now, is this the first bill, speaking of policy, is this the first bill passed in honor of the Uyghurs, or have there been other measures taken to defend them? It's the first legislation coming out of this Congress ever um, to protect the Uyghurs. Although I can say, you know, if you're interested in that historical sidelight, back in the 1950s, there was a captive nations bill which was aimed at looking at world communism and when the, particularly the Soviet Union was um, su suppressing national identities and national um, movements. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and actually the East Turkestan, which is the homeland of the Uyghurs, was actually listed as, excuse me, listed as, as one of the captive nations. Then it was forgotten about. Um, and in, in more recent times, uh, this is the bill, and not, it's not just the first in the U.S., it's the first anywhere in the world. The European Union, the European Parliament, did pass two resolutions, but in terms of passing an actual policy, um, if, once this, if this passes in the House and is signed with the president by this president, it will be the first anywhere, and we actually really hope that, um, that other countries will realize it's, they can take steps, and, because it has to be a global response. Sure. By the way, the Washington Post has covered this, so you guys have had some mainstream coverage as well, which is great. Yeah. Um, even just recently, one of the most important, well, first of all, the editorial page has been great. Mm -hmm. um, headlines just 
saying in very plain terms what's really happening is um, beyond brutal. It's beyond imagination. You know, mm. concentrates concentration camps for children. Um, China must stop this brutal cleansing. Mm. Uh, and trying to and, and then on the reporting side, fantastic reporting by a number of reporters, including just most recently on on Mar, um, February twenty. Aids, uh, the Beijing bureau chief of the Washington Post, Anna Fifield, did an undercover story about going to a factory in a city in northwest China, northeast China called Qingdao and looking at one of the biggest Nike factories in the world right. and finding out that they had Uyghur workers who were forced labor. They were, had no freedom. They were like locked up not in a prison, but in a factory making fact making products right. for American In a very consumers. dangerous environment too, no less. They were in a segregated dormitory. They have special monitoring apps on their phones. They have to have mandatory Chinese study, this ideological conditioning to make sure that they don't, um, their thinking doesn't come out of line. I mean, does that sound like Big Brother or what? Uh, and then they had a special minder um, I, I don't think she could find out whether they were actually from the police or they were hired by the factory. They had to be watched over. Um, they weren't allowed to go home. They did get to go out and shop um, about once a week, she found out. But this is tremendous, tremendous um, slam on the reputation of Nike, which is supposed to have clean supply chains and follow sustainability practices. Mm -hmm. So Washington Post absolutely has been not only covering what's happening to the Uyghurs, but connecting it to our consumers. Well, and it's so important because we talked about this before. The NBA, the first week of this whole controversy with the Rockets, were like, oh, don't criticize, don't criticize them. Who's Lee, whose side are you on? You know, it's like you got to be on our side, right? On the American side. Are you self-censoring because of what? You want to sell your, you know, your broadcasting rights in China. Um, you don't have to criticize every country in the world for everything. The question is when it's... Um, real brutality this yeah. is not a matter of you know i think you can talk about degrees and i'm you know in the human rights world we'd like to talk about all rights are indivisible of course that's true i don't want to minimize anybody else's suffering but when you have things like war crimes when you have gas attacks when you have genocidal scale persecution um, it really becomes more of a question of how you can avoid how you can say i need to remain silent to maintain my market access mm. And it's just, it's just heartbreaking to think of that way. But now that we're into technology and broadcasting and Big Brother, has the Uyghur, have the Uyghurs faced any issues through WhatsApp? Have they been a group that's been targeted through WhatsApp for trying to break free and set themselves free from China? That's a great question. Um, definitely Uyghurs uh, have to assume, they all assume that their devices are monitored. And I think a lot of people could learn from the Uyghurs, you know, you have to have a sort of self-discipline that if you really have something that you don't want other people to know about, don't do it on a device. You have to meet somebody face to face, keep your phone away. It's very hard to do that in real life. Mm -hmm. And now in our um, quarantine, uh, it truly has become impossible. But certainly hackers have attacked Uyghur chat, um, chats through and uh, attacks on Facebook. So Facebook and uh, websites taken down because of, through DDoS attacks um, and then spyware 
and malware, uh, all that, the whole gamut they've definitely experienced um, in the past. Has there been an investigation in that? Is it possible that's uh, the government's doing or is that kind of assumed or is there actual data and facts to back that assumption up? There is. So for those who are interested in looking up um, Citizen Lab in Canada and uh, another uh, organization I'm forgetting um, have published a detailed report where they were able to trace back who was conducting these reports. So it's a state-directed attack and it is aimed at uh, silencing people, intimidating them, inhibiting them from being in touch with other people, um, both to you know, try to silence them, right? Just so that you cannot speak out publicly um, and therefore um, help mm. China avoid criticism, the government avoid criticism for what it's doing. But it also, um, it's just in the DNA of a dictatorship to uh, where all the bureaucracies, their job is don't allow criticism. If I allow criticism, then I'm not doing my job and I can't get promoted. And so it creates a vicious cycle of repression. And there's just no concern about the, um, the harm to individuals who are at the other end of that. Louisa, I mean, so we're, we, my organization actually issued a report last August. Yeah. No, go for it. Tell it. So what was the report? So we wrote a report, this is what it was called, Repression Without Borders. Everybody knows Doctors Without Borders, which is great, and there are other humanitarian groups, um, Journalists Without Borders. In this case, the government of China does not recognize the sovereignty of the United States, right, and has sure. continues to have police whose job it is, is to send threatening notes by uh, phone chat, so this WeChat Chinese chat system, to Uyghurs um, to warn them um, you should watch out. You should take care for your family. That they, if you if you want them to be taken care of, if you want them to avoid bad things. So we wrote the whole report, and we, our organization, we actually tried to brief law enforcement. We went to federal law enforcement, and we said, this is happening. It's a violation of their rights under federal and state law. You cannot threaten people over phones. Mm. And what we learned was that law enforcement can definitely track, and the. the and the FBI has a mandate to track civil rights violations and hate crimes. But the FBI can only do so much, it has to prosecute. Its only way of enforcing those is to prosecute the violators and therefore have a deterrent effect. But if the, what happens when the perpetrators are sitting in China? Well, yeah, and I was just gonna say, I've had Jeff Mordock on, he's a DOJ reporter at the Washington Times. Unfortunately, State Department even isn't even really you know, prosecuting hate crimes done to Asian Americans here, which is not a good sign. Yes, it's very hard to do that. I mean, there's always a danger in talking about hate crimes um, in this casual way, because we don't want to be um, creating thought crimes. Like if you assault somebody and it's because of racial animus, have you done them more harm than assaulting them just randomly? But it is true that if there's a pattern of discrimination where there's a emboldening of criminals to hurt other people because of the victim's race, for sure, let's track that and try to um, ensure that we counter that with, a, with enforcement and deterrence, that that is not acceptable in our society. And, right. um, but the good thing is that this bill has solved mm -hmm. one of our problems actually, because there's a report a little notice report in the bill which would require the FBI to track and collect data about threats received by Uyghurs from Chinese state agents and give a report to the Congress. 
if that weren't asked for, the FBI can track, but it's all confidential, as it should be. Um, they can't just on their own say, we have a report, look at these 6,000 you know, threats received, somebody do something about it, that's all kept quiet. So now that the Congress will get this report in 180 days, that opens the door for the Congress to start asking questions, hold hearings, or um, communicate with the executive branch and say, look, we're getting this information, we need to come together and uh, you know, we wanna see a policy response to deter the Chinese government from continuing to violate our sovereignty in this country and violating their free speech rights. And of course, now they want to be recognized for the $2 billion they've spent to fix the pandemic. It's such a, it's so baloney yeah. and yet- What are your guests saying about that? I mean, does anybody, I mean, are there some people who are saying, well, at least they're trying to help even though you know, they themselves, the Chinese people themselves suffered from this disease first? I mean, I haven't really talked to anybody about this yet, but it, when I saw that headline, it's like, People are going to eat right out of their hand because they don't want to lose their connections. There are a bunch of people in politics that don't want to lose their connection with China. It's really disgusting. Yeah, but I will say it's, it's also true. I mean, I signed a, a public statement um, that was issued three weeks ago, actually in USA Today, which was from 200 foreign policy experts and analysts that said, actually, we are concerned that um, anger over what came from China, this terrible disease, which has devastated so many people's lives and health, mm -hmm. and it's continuing to devastate our lives and our economy, our jobs, everybody's education, all the kids who can't graduate, um, so many people who are in depression and having terrible family problems globally. Yeah. Um, it really is a horrific situation. And so if that anger, it turns into uh, anger at Chinese people. And so these very violent attacks, um, a child happening. attacked in a mall. I mean, this, that is terrible. So this statement condemned that and said that we really need to separate um, a strategic uh, pushback against what the Chinese government is getting away with. Mm. Louisa, um, this is, this is and, so and separate that from what um, Asian people in our own society, it's Chinese Americans, Asian Americans, um, everybody should, they, they're, they're not the government. No, they're not. And I, I, I agree there has to be that distinction made or we're going to lose another part of this country in a way, right? We're going to lose another part of the country. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't look it now that you can see me on YouTube, but um, I, I come from an Asian American family, actually a Chinese American family, um, when, you know, a couple generations back. And um, so absolutely it's true that the, the fabric of America includes people from coming from all over. It's one of the strengths of our country. And we, you know, sometimes it takes some time and people do suffer in the meantime, but we, I do think we have, we appeal to our better, better natures and we do recognize acceptance of all um, people from everywhere, whatever they look like, whatever their languages are. So now's the time not to forget that exactly. We can't um, take out uh, frustration against people who happen to be from China. We really, we really cannot. Uh, Louisa, my my biggest question right now is, and maybe you don't have to answer this, but do you think there's a sector that wants us to be controlled like China controls its people? Mm. So you're worried about people saying, let's go ahead and have surveillance on our phones? I'm just worried about us. Be, even putting us in masks kind of feels like we're starting to become like, you know, the streets of China where everybody has to wear masks. It's like, we're not, that's not our issue. That's not our our freedom here. Yeah, so many issues. Um, 
well, one way to think about it is, one way we can distinguish ourselves from these dictatorships is that to allow local decision-making. Maybe you do have to have some kind of government guidance or rules, but isn't it better to have that at the state level than the, than the federal level? That's mm -hmm. a personal opinion, nothing from my, um, my human rights work. And that allows, so I live in Virginia, and um, for sure some of the more open and rural areas uh, people can go get haircuts if they just take proper precautions. And ironically, the mask, which makes you feel uncomfortable, actually might allow you to do it. Well, no, that's if you're that I, close. To, if you're half an hour next to someone doing your hair, you might want to say, let's not breathe in each other's air for half an hour straight. Um, but let's go ahead and have that haircut. I agree. So let me track back. So yeah, in the long run, I feel like I don't want us to become wearing masks all the time. But for right now, we do need it. In fact, if you remember, the CDC said, you know, if you go to work, you should wear your mask, but you can go back to work. That plan kind of got shelved and put out of commission. And it's like, no, that's a great plan. Why not enact that? Yeah. Well, it's confusing, too, because at the beginning, they told people not to wear a mask because they want they, even the healthcare workers didn't have it. And for sure, if you're in that kind of sustained contact over time, from what I understand, that's, that's much more likely to really give you a, a really terrible dose. So... Is there, um, Louis, is there any study on how many Uyghurs deaths were actually hidden by China during the COVID crisis over there when it first hit? That's a great question. There is so much secrecy in the Uyghur region of China that we just don't know. The official figures, uh, I believe, are still that in the whole entire region, which has about 22, 23 million people, mm -hmm. uh, you know, bigger than some European countries, it's just one region, uh, that there were only 76, 76 cases and three deaths. And a lot of people just don't believe that. Um, just like we don't believe, uh, unfortunately, the other statistics related to COVID coming from the Chinese government. Um, and there were absolutely um, indications that, well, the government has tried to cover up mm. the detention mm. of probably, you know, at least between one and two million people and why wouldn't they cover up these deaths um so i, I really can't tell you but the, the Uyghurs truly fear truly fear that um if the if the outbreak comes that they wouldn't even get help because the government has dehumanized and demonized the Uyghur people and would in some way the local officials would not be rushing to prioritize their health Louisa, I've got to ask, and Louisa Grieve is my guest today. She is the Director of Human Advocacy, I believe, at the Uyghur Rights Project. Is that right? Yes. So I popped up my head. But uh, no, I'm, I'm glad you're joining us. And this whole thing is so disturbing. I'm trying to think of what I was going to ask next. But it is, um, the, the secrecy drives me nuts. And it should drive everybody nuts. But it seems like some people don't even care that they covered it up. That's right. Well, the other question is the surveillance, though, too, because um, some things, you know, I always like to say that the experience of the Uyghurs should be a, a red alert, a warning for the rest mm -hmm. of the world, that you do trade some privacy for convenience. Every app that you have that shows your location, even it goes back before we had smartphones. Do you remember this? You would have a loyalty card, especially at the grocery store, right? You put in oh, your yeah. phone number. Yep. And then that's how you get the extra coupons, 20 cents off here, right? 40 cents right. off there. What the heck? And people I know who are more privacy 
um, concerned would say, no, I'm not giving them my phone number because I am giving something up to get that discount. Yeah. And yeah. so if you have a loyalty card just at a grocery store, um, they have a complete record of everything you've ever bought and probably just use it to restock the supplies, right? Probably no nefarious purpose, nothing that really could limit your rights. But nowadays, of course. Um, so have you had anyone on the show who um, covers what's called um, surveillance capitalism? I have to get someone on to talk about I that. I think that would be useful. I'm not an expert, but it's one of those dangers that China has shown us the way that the more data you collect and the more easy it is to collate the data and cross-check it and use it for big data analytics or even prediction mm. and artificial intelligence, the more a bad actor doesn't have to have armies or you know, right. a dip diplomat or a seat at the UN or any of the traditional requirements of state power, they can exert that power simply through the data. And there are some people who are concerned that in fact, the state China is collecting so much data because it would, it does intend to dominate the digital world, which means both traditional trade-offs, like, you know, just like Saudi Arabia has the oil, so it has more power than if it didn't, right? It can dictate the terms of certain things. China can dictate to the whole world, um, it's how its interests are treated because it's sitting on top of the data and maybe even able to reach in. It sounds a little bit um, Orwellian or something. Yes, it does. Yeah. Or even yeah. like it's a movie plot. Could they reach in and you know basically blackmail people by saying, here's the data I have on you and do that on a large scale. They do that in the spy to spy world, right? International SPIs, obviously people are entrapped because they have secrets. So they're, they're pressured to spy. But what if you do that on a large scale? What if you had our members of Congress? Um, and that is why mobile voting is very risky to me. It's a reason why mm. I'm not happy with that. And uh, there's also this feeling with Orwellian style. We are sort of seeing the snowball Napoleon animal farm take place in America right now because who's controlling who leadership is controlling what we do. And we're, some are starving. I mean, it's not cool. It's not great. It's not something we should be easily signed up for. And what you're saying here with the data surveillance, surveillance capitalism, it's why they're protesting at these different state capitals, right? So it's, it's good to raise those questions. And, and part of the problem is though with us, because can we say as a consumer, I want a phone that doesn't track me? Mm. Um, that's why it's so insidious. It's very hard to give up those conveniences, right? And you they, can't even buy a map. I mean, we, my family was a holdout. Because, partly because I've, I've been working on human rights in China so long and also specifically on the Uyghur crisis. I see how dangerous it is. Um, I held out. I didn't have a phone for the longest time. Uh, so I didn't have a GPS. I never bought a GPS. Okay. Well, that's so if I went somewhere unfamiliar, I had to either look it up on my computer first because I did use the computer maps. Or in the car, I would have a paper map. When was the last time you saw a paper map? I mean, you probably don't drive, but. <laughs> I really yeah. don't yet, but it is true. And, and I also have my grief when New York City drivers were only required to have GPS. They didn't have to know a map of New York. You're a cab driver. How, how do you not have a map? How do you not know what, why rely on the GPS? That really got me frustrated. Now, you know, last time we talked, and I hope there's been progress on this. You talked about a GoFundMe that you guys were doing, a petition. How did that go? Oh, that's really great. I'm trying to remember which one it was. Um, 
I can definitely recommend, maybe I said it was called Avaz, A-V-A-A-Z. Yes, that's, that's yes. the one, yep. Okay, so they're still trying to get to a million. Okay, so all of your, Alex, all of your friends, please go to avaz.org, A-V-A-A-Z. Um, it's, it's definitely over 900,000. And I know some student groups, there's um, a group of students called Students for Xinjiang, who've been organizing, even off campus, they've taken advantage of the technology and put on a, a virtual um, oh, panel last great. Friday, that's great. which really was good. And then they asked people to sign these petitions and they're trying to push Avaz. And I actually had a, a Muslim student group, um, just a bunch of volunteers who said, look, as with Muslim Americans, we want to be active in civic affairs. And one of the issues we want to work on is this Uyghur crisis in China. What can we do? And so they're going to also burst, um, boost that same petition. Um, so Thank I should have written down the number at the last time we talked so I could report the progress since then, but I haven't done that. I'll, uh, I'll, we do I'll have a GoFundMe for humanitarian things. Um, I'll just mention it because it's really quite heart, heartwarming that 45 different Uyghur groups from everywhere from Turkey to Kazakhstan to Germany, Finland, Norway, mm -hmm. Australia, everywhere where the diaspora has gone, they all came together to recognize that um, a lot of Uyghurs who are stuck without proper papers, undocumented, because the Chinese government won't um, give them their proper papers, won't renew their passports. Mm. So they're stuck in limbo in Turkey with the economy, the COVID economy, meaning that even the, some of the casual work that they were, some of them were doing is drying up and there's so much need. And so they did it, do a good GoFundMe and it was, it was tremendous. It raised over a hundred thousand dollars, which is really heartwarming. So. Congratulations to them on that. Now, Louisa, for those who may not know your you know, backstory or may even follow the project, but only know you by name and through the title. Who is Louisa Grieve? How did you get involved with this? Um, I, well, I actually mentioned my, my family, my grandmother um, was born in a little village in Southern China. And so because of that, I had a tremendous interest in Chinese people, culture, history. And then when I started studying it, I, I really had a, a, a wake up moment. I actually, I literally have a journal when I was 21 years old, I was writing in my journal. And I said, I really feel the rose colored glasses have come off. And I realized that uh, the current government of China, the Chinese Communist Party is not doing its best or deserves sympathy because the third world was so oppressed by, you know, the rich countries or something even if China was a victim of other imperialist powers or other countries in past centuries, it doesn't excuse brutal, vicious dictatorship mm. um, that it was. And so from then on, I paid a lot of attention to human rights. Well, I'm glad you have really it. Really out of idealism. And I'm sure that you get excited every time you see, even Flushing, I saw a Uyghur rights rally in Flushing, Queens. And so there is a, a momentum here. In no the, in kidding. The yeah, I've got to send you that link. So. I'd love to see that. Yeah, Flushing is a big center of immigration from China to the United States. And I think of it as a Chinese place. Great that people there were paying attention to the Uyghur crisis. Well, Louisa, thank you so much. And one last question. With this whole thing, did we actually take China's lead on this? Did we really just take their lead and say nothing's really going to happen? About how to deal with COVID? Yeah, yep. I do. Oh, it's a big, complicated story. It's nothing that I have expertise on, but I will say that um, it's a it's a natural feeling. I don't 
think it'll happen the, the next time we have a pandemic, but it did look like for those of us watching what was happening to the poor people of Wuhan, boy, this is really terrible. What a terrible disease. And then the disease caused these lockdowns and mm -hmm. a lot of suffering, a lot of um, careless uh, act policies that were basically very, very cruel and forcing people to stay indoors. And mm -hmm. at the same time, we knew that the authorities who should have shut down travel and should have told people don't gather. They had a huge New Year, Chinese New Year's celebration of tens of thousands of people that absolutely sh never should have happened. Um, so what you can learn from that is one, you have to take it seriously. Disease does know no borders. And secondly, I'm trying to do a better job. Um, and unfortunately, we're still in the middle of working that out. And uh, we were we were talking that New Year's weekend and said, well, how is this happening? Why are they still allowing travel? It was kind of insane. And of course, you know, we're also seeing the WHO be more at fault than the last time we talked. So that's another issue there, too. Absolutely. For if anyone wants to pay attention, right, you know, you've got the UN headquarters there in New York. I uh, lived a block away from it for, for about 10 years of my life, the first 10. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. And that play, um, that is a, a battleground for influence and the very blunt way of stating it is it's a battle of um, liberal democratic ideas um, with um, ideologies of state that put the state first over the individual, um, that uh, rights are what governments make them rather than adhering in every, every human being have equal human dignity. And then from there you build, uh, try to build governance systems that minimize the assaults mm -hmm. on human dignity and individual rights and for them, you know, do their best without ever being perfect. But the other way around, the, the Russias and the Chinas, the states, parties that are in the UN are actually trying to turn a lot of those UN institutions around to protecting states over protecting individuals. And right now there's a good balance of um, protecting sovereignties to try to prevent wars. Um, just once there's a border, please don't mess with it. And certainly not by force, that's the peace side. And then the human rights side and freedom side, has to do with protecting individuals and not states. And so China is a bad actor. So for sure, that'd be a great topic for another uh, another show of yours, Alex. Louisa, one last thing. Where can people find you, the, the human, Uyghur Human Rights Project, and read the bill that was just passed? Great questions. So our website is uhrp.org, uhrp.org. Uh, for... Uh, we're even, we're certainly on Facebook, uh, the Uyghur Human Rights Project. The bill itself, well, as with most bills, it's really hard to read the actual language. Of course, for all the politically active people watching, you do go to congress.gov and you um, just type in S3744 and you'll find the bill that just passed the Senate. Uh, but to get a shorter version, you can go to our website. We have a press release that says, UHRP thanks the Senate for passing the bill. And actually down at the very bottom of that press release, there's a link to a short five point summary that we created about the bill. And it's important we talk about it now, that, that way if you want this to happen, call your Congressman, right? Just say, hey, vote again for this. That's right, it's where the Senate has already voted. They did their work, you can thank them. That would yeah. be great, actually. I, I, I happen to know that some of those senators would like to hear whether the, um, that constituents care about those and then the House. But can I just suggest that um, as much as the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act um, needs attention, if anyone's interested, they should also consider the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection 
a prevention mm -hmm. act. Yes. Uh, whether anyone can remember that. So think about forced labor. If you're calling your member of Congress, say forced labor, really horrifying. I don't want my Nikes made by people kept under lock and key by the Chinese government. So stop the forced labor in the Chinese factories. Louise, you it. guys are part of a, a revolution there. So I'm glad that, that you're joining every time you can. So thanks so much. Thanks for your time, Alex. Great questions. And I'm Alex Garrett. We'll talk to you tomorrow. back radio hope mike myers uh first of all uh i know that you play a lot of music and i know that spreaker's updated its terms and services i don't know if you got that email or not but it's pretty intriguing um that we can we have to be careful what we play on here so that's why i'm doing instrumentals from now on uh, with that i'll continue doing what i'm doing until i'm contacted and told not to keep doing what i'm doing i can't believe that uh, itunes approved you know, the Apple folks. I, see, because you're humble. I, I knew that would happen because you got some great content. And I think it's also maybe the volume of content that you produce, like the amount of it. Maybe that's why they also let you in. I mean, there's, there's definitely oh. a screening process, I think. Oh, because a lot of people just, uh, that's all their shows are, just like music shows. Yeah. Song after song after song. Yeah, I like to hear somebody say something at some point, even if it's not worthwhile to hear. Uh, well, right. And that's the thing what we're trying that but we should do better to inspire podcasts, which is like, don't just come on here and, and do a podcast about nothing. Make it purposeful, you know? Yeah, I agree. Because I do feel like sometimes there's, I don't know the purpose of some podcasts and then other podcasts are moving. I don't know. It's like a mixture. And if what if the purpose is just because you like there's a friend of mine, Gary Russin, who just absolutely loves radio. He has yeah. since and I'm the I'm the same way. I just love And he does know. do a great news bit at the top of every hour. I noticed that when he's live on there. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, very much so. So what's going on in Radio Hope World today? Um well, I don't know, dude. I know you hate the word dude in, in, in context. So what I, I was, I, I, I responded to a post on Facebook on a, on a, and I shouldn't have, and I did. And, and this young person referred to me as dude. So I just and thought, it so was, I just thought it was disrespectful, but you know, I think that's what a lot of us, I, and I, I, I have to check myself. Well, let me ask you this. I'm sure you'd rather be called Mike rather than sir and dude. You'd rather just be called Mike. Oh, well, here's one of the problems with sir. I called somebody, referred to somebody as sir one day when I had my retail electronic sales and service store. And I said, listen, sir. And of course, it was the way I said, sir. And he was probably, don't call me, sir. <laughs> But I think he, I think he was right. I mean, that can be, you know, listen here, ma'am. Yeah. Yep. I don't know. Maybe we're just. I was just thinking of the, uh, I don't know. Then they make fun of all these people who had the, can I speak to your manager look on Facebook? It's kind of funny, but it's just, 
there's a way to address people. You know, there is a way to address people. Yeah. And I think one of the best ways to remember how that is to be done uh, is that we are all created in God's image. I mean, to, to refer to somebody as a, uh, I don't know, a fag. I mean, come on, people. Golly. Do you know fag is actually a term for a bundle of sticks? And a cigarette in England, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Ooh, you are a, you are a well-educated young man. I play one on the, on the, ra- on the podcast. Don't get me oh. <laughs> All right, so in the Christian world, uh, Ravi Zacharias was mourned yesterday. Did you have any yeah. connection with him? Actually, I got to tell you, I, I teared up. He is truly one of my favorite teachers, apologists, and uh, w- could, could put up a fantastic, quote, argument with an atheist and just do it extremely well. If you've never, if you've never seen him in action, uh, you might want to check out some of his, some of his uh, YouTube videos where he's addressing, you know, uh, c- college groups. And he just does a great job of it. He just hits the truth. He just comes back to always comes back to the truth. Mm. And, and I, I think he if, is going to be surely missed. Now, to me, I still am trying to grasp the apologetics. What exactly that is? Because I'm not. It doesn't mean you're apologizing. I used no. to think. I I used to think that. Why would I apologize for my faith? I think it's making a case for what you believe. And um, I think that's the best way to put it. It's just making a case. I could ask, you know, who? Who? Alexa, what's the definition of apologetics? Here's what I found on Wikipedia. Apologetics is the religious discipline of defending or proving the truth of religious doctrines through systematic argumentation and discourse. Well, let me ask you, do you think... I think why we mourn those legends, not only because they were legends, but maybe that the way of delivering it has certainly changed over the years and the classics really did it right. Yes, absolutely. I, 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 yep. With gentleness and respect, not fine, die and go to hell. Do what I care. You know? Right. So it's, just, it's a big loss in the Christian community. And I, I'm glad that you had, uh, gotten a chance he never came into your studios though right oh no 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 i would have considered that just an absolute honor and he would have uh probably considered it an honor to be asked that's the kind of guy he that's just the kind of guy he is he seemed quite humbled actually that's for sure very 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 there's something we've lost yeah well some of us not all of us maybe be careful no, not all of us. We still have a lot of people out there who, you and I, as I told you, we got a guy in the, in the National Football League, Kansas City Chief. He uh, he goes out and and goes on the front line of the pandemic with his doctorate after winning the Super Bowl. So I mean, wow, people. I mean, he's a rarity. Some athletes don't really do that today, right? They don't really go back on the front lines, but um, this guy did, and I was really appreciative of that. And and then others do that uh, maybe shouldn't, but that's not a fair, no, 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 no. I guess we just need to make sure, I think everybody, we need to make our voice heard and not, and not be fearful. 
Well, you know, I know that you've got to get to a radio show, a radio show in just a bit. So tell us what's up at, at 9 a.m. Eastern. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about faith and hearing things. And then who are we, who are we listening to? I, my wife, my wife will say stuff and, and I'll say, I don't know. I think I'm going to have to check that out. I don't know where you're getting your information. And I do question her, but sometimes that I get the look. Well, <laughs> it happens, and and vice versa. And well, I was say, does she question your? So she questions your information? Oh, sh sh yeah, yeah. I think it's good to do that. You know, where do you get your information? And really, because it's the two of you, I think it's good that you bounce back and forth and keep each other in check, so to speak. Is that some kind of a? Rate check rate. I'm just being a dork. <clears throat> you know checks. Uh, I was thinking not cereal. Never mind. My brain one last is... thing about checks, by the way. I think we're going to yeah. get another one, right? <laughs> another. You know what? Interesting. You brought that up. I don't know where you're at with all this stuff, but I hope we don't. Mm. I hope we don't. Well, they approved a $4.3 trillion package for who knows what. I don't know exactly. Yeah, the House. Yeah, the Senate did not vote that out. Uh, vote that up, I don't think. So. I don't think they're going to – I don't think they're going to go for it. I don't know. I mean, would I mind receiving it? Uh, I sure wouldn't mind receiving it. We just got set up on a bill payment for a $1,200 medical bill yesterday and so you know that comes that's it's been coming in hand we haven't spent huh wow we haven't even close to touch half of what we received so it's come it's come in very handy for us we're just being very careful with uh i did buy a new filet knife yesterday though <gasps> i'm so excited oh that's good do you okay, cook steak at home no no oh, we're talking fish filet oh <laughs> i went fishing yesterday and caught a fish I guess I was thinking filet mignon or something like that. But. Yeah, well, I do grill. Yeah, but anyway, fish filet is also pretty darn good. Not gonna lie. Well, I'm kind of got I've I've gotten hooked on fishing again, so it's kind of kind of fun. And it's healthy for you. I mean, I I used to have fish oil. I don't know if you used to do that too, but I used to have cod liver oil at times. And how come you quit? I just got busy. This is the thing. Before the pandemic, I was just running all over the place. So this really just settled me into a routine. Interesting. Mm -hmm. the, uh, so something good has come out of this. Oh, by the way, I did talk to my daughter, doctor, daughter, about this whole getting tested thing. And she uh, pretty much said uh, the numbers are definitely skewed. And by the way, one, one last backtrack, uh, which is bad, but <coughs> yesterday you had a pastor, you, you aired a preaching from, I believe, Ken Davidson. Is that right? Yes. Well, I guess people should go back and listen to that if they're interested. Why did you share his message? Because uh, he was talking about COVID-19 and how, you know, there's uh, – I love this quote. Let me see if I can find it. I thought this was so cool. Uh, wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Uh, where, 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 oh, come on, Michael. Oh, fear is the dark room where negatives are developed. Wow. Isn't that profound? I could just see it too, a black room and all the water and all your fears are like becoming 
coming up through the water like in the dark room it's very weird it's very yeah, itchy have you were, and you're probably too young to have ever i used to develop my own black and white film and oh if you get that you want to make sure you don't get the uh the the chemicals <laughs> mixed up if you stop it before you started to develop it it ain't never gonna work and if you're in a dark room you don't always know which uh chemical pan is which so anyway i thought i'd share that mike it, it is such a beautiful process yet i always felt like the movies like made it some creepy thing to be in the dark room developing pictures but really it's a nice process for people to to try anyway i still have one of my uh my uh one of my sons and uh i'm very proud of that picture actually cool i enjoyed that okay focus i'm sorry um one last thing well i've yes. never asked you this yet in during this pandemic but what exactly were you doing before the pandemic hit uh i was driving a uh van for the school and i i miss it i i was i'm guessing it's starting to get to you like you want to drive again these people i miss i miss the fact i had this conversation with uh ruth ann last night she was listening to this preaching uh, by this Ken David Davidson. And uh, she's been, she's only seen one other person in the last two months. And that's not, we're not made to isolate like this. It's, it's having, no. it's, uh, that's why I got to keep getting out. Yep. Hey, Mike, and you'll be on the air once again today at 9 a.m. Eastern. We will talk to you then. And stay tuned to a special playlist on YouTube where our video chats will also be aired. And now uh, you can catch up with us there. Cool. Mike Myers. Hey. Thanks for Love you, all brother. you do. Have yep. a great show at 9 a.m. Eastern. Thanks. Bye. You bet. I'm Alex Garrett. We'll talk to you soon.